This is the 966. Today, Richard, we have an interview with Kate Durian, who is non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington and contributing editor at Mies, the Middle East Economic Survey. I was really pleased we were able to do this. This is our first topical, uh, and it's on energy. Surprise, surprise. But uh, as you know, what we found uh, that um, because Saudi Arabia is so unique um, and that it's in an expansionary mode across almost every sector of energy, if you're looking at crude, if you're looking at renewable, if you're looking at clean, they're uh, actively pushing forward on initiatives in all three of those. We really needed an expert to come in, and Kate is an expert. She did um, a really interesting, which we recommend, uh, she did a scene setter for uh, the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington's uh, 2021 Petro Diplomacy Conference. Uh, and the scene setter was Gulf up for a net zero world. Again, that can be found on the AGSU, Arab Gulf States Institute of Washington's website. But it, it covered that range from crude to clean. And so we were excited to have Kate come join us. And it was, it's a really good conversation. It's a great conversation. She's also a former editor and a veteran journalist covering energy. So she knows it inside and out for Reuters and Platt. So um, without further delay, let's get to it. Here's our interview with Kate Durian. Can we start with Saudi Arabia's current plans to increase its maximum sustained crude oil production capacity from 12 million barrels a day to 13 million barrels a day by 2027? What's, what's the rationale behind this? Um, yeah, just a, a quick note here. It's not actually Saudi Arabia's total production capacity, because if you add the neutral zone, which is shared with Kuwait, you okay. actually get another an extra half million. That's capacity, not production. So... Yeah, it's Saudi Aramco, which is increasing, has been asked by the government to increase production capacity from 12 to 13 million by 2027. And it won't happen in one go. It'll come in increments. And it's mostly going to come from offshore fields. Um, and they've already designated the fields where it's going to come from. And if you look globally um, and you look at the, the, you know, the need for additional oil, even in a transition scenario, you're going to get most of it from offshore fields. Interesting. Um, it's also sort of bucking the trend in terms of, of uh, investment and expansion of, of crude energy production capacity. I, I, there was a interesting piece this morning in Quartz by Michael Corrin, who basically said that the oil and gas industry is on track to discover just 4.7 billion barrels of oil equivalent uh, by the end of 2021, its worst performance in 75 years. Um, the ratio of proven reserves to production, a measure of how much extractable oil remains in the ground relative to annual production, is now at the lowest level since 2011. We see we see um, international oil companies, Kate, you know, pulling back on their capital investment, moving you know dividends to investors, and and, and just reassessing their investment patterns over the last decades. Uh, and so, but in light, you know, whereas national oil companies like Saudi Aramco. As we see they're expanding. How, how do you see this playing out? Um, I mean, it's it's an interesting, I think uh, there, there was a recent article by Jason Hordoff basically saying, you know, if you exclude the oil and gas companies, the IOCs, then, you know, if you stop investing, you're going to, it's a pyrrhic victory because you have to also tackle demand. You know, you have to, um, you have to put more effort into energy efficiency, into, into decline, because, at the end of the day, even in, in, a, in a faster energy 
area. I mean, look at 2030, if you look at the IEA's forecast, even in their sort of net zero pathway, by 2030, you're going to be maybe 1 million below what you were in 2019 in terms of, of right. supply, total supply. So if you say 2019 was about 100 million barrels a day of total supply, it went down obviously in, in 2020 because of COVID, it's slowly ramping up again. Um, so by 2030, you're only 1 million below. Now, Take that with natural decline rates, anywhere between four and a half and six percent. It's higher in, in the non-OPEC countries. Um, you need to invest. A, a recent McKinsey report said you still need about you still need to continue drilling. You know, you need about thirty-five million barrels of oil a day. So, uh, and what's happening now is you're seeing yes, the international oil companies or energy companies as they like to be called, are stepping back uh. from investment. You had the investment declines in 2014, 2015, when oil prices collapsed. And we're seeing the result of that now because you take, you know, it takes about five years to actually go from concept to, you know, from final investment decision to actually first order. And these conventional oil fields have a longer lead time to get into production than, say, U.S. shale, where you can just drill, it comes out, and it's sort of almost instant, which is why people said U.S. shale was becoming the new, you know, the swing producer. But that's also declined. It's not coming back as fast because, as you said, companies are, uh, ex ex are exercising more capital discipline, returning more money to shareholders, paying off debt, which accumulated when it was rising so exponentially. So you will have the national oil companies, there will be an onus on the national oil companies to continue investing, but you can't really expect them to continue investing if you keep saying, you know what, your demand is going to peak by 2030, if not before, 2040. Um, but Aramco is, yes, in a way it's bucking the trend. It is investing, I think, 70 to 75% of their budget for 2021 is for upstream investment. But at the same time, they are branching into hydrogen, um, green hydrogen, blue hydrogen, more gas, unconventional and conventional, building up their sort of their gas network. Um, so I think it's a more diversified energy portfolio that we're seeing in Saudi Arabia to prepare for the time when um, demand for oil will decline, when it peaks is, you know, again, the pathway is not very clear. There, I'm back. Um, and actually, Kate, that's a when you talk about uh, Saudi Arabia's portfolio of energy investments, it's a natural transition to what they're trying to do with with natural gas, and specifically the uh, the Jafura natural gas project, which they, Saudi Arabia just announced plans is is going to proceed. Um, it's expected to come online in 2024 and produce about uh, 2 billion cubic feet a day by 2026. It's, um, it's Saudi Arabia's first non-conventional or fracking gas field. And uh, it's expected to produce significant feedstocks amounts for ethane and gas liquids and condensates for Saudi Arabia's petrochemical industries, which is a another big focus. Um, this is this is a huge and technically challenging project uh, with investment expected to surpass 100 billion, and, and about 100 billion of that has already been been uh, awarded uh, in term in for a number of 16 or so engineering procurement and construction contracts. Uh, why is this natural gas project moving forward now, in your opinion? Yeah, it has been talked about for a long time. I mean, they've known that they have unconventional. Um, uh, gas but i think a lot of it is because saudi arabia had toyed with the idea of maybe importing gas it uh, it 
it toyed with the idea of maybe looking at um, at investing in overseas gas projects and, and ultimately decided to go ahead with this because firstly it it means that you don't need to invest so much in crude oil upstream because you can displace um, in power generation you can displace liquid fuels crude oil and in fact if you look at their numbers the crude oil burn the direct burn of crude oil to generate electricity has come down the other issue is that um, a lot of the gas that's produced it used to be about half it's a bit less now but is associated gas associated with crude oil so if you're going to be producing less crude oil in the future that means your associated gas is going to go down yes they have and there are parts of saudi arabia where you don't actually have access um you know the north the south so jafura will supply um the south it it won't come on stream until 2036 so you're talking 100 billion over the life cycle of this huge project right um, but i think it is necessary as you said feedstock for petrochemicals which is uh, which is a big deal i mean the future of fossil fuels is to either strip the carbon from um from oil from fossil fuels uh, and put it in the ground or incorporate it lock it into products, you know, uh, chemicals uh, and, and, you know, more sophisticated chemical products. So I think that's where it's heading. And of course, it gives you the opportunity to produce blue hydrogen, which is produced from natural gas um, and green hydrogen using solar energy. I mean, they have the feedstock. The thing about the, the likes of Saudi Arabia, other Gulf states, is they have the cheap feedstock and they have, you know, endless renewables capacity, both solar and, in Saudi Arabia's case, the Red Sea North uh, wind. So, um, you know, the, the elements are there for them to sort of deploy. Uh, and I think Saudi Arabia started a bit late. You know, they had very ambitious plans for renewables. Right. They scaled them down. Um, the target was 2040. Now, by 2023, I think you're going to have about nine gigawatts um, of, uh, of renewables. So it, it is moving forward. It's also part of the whole 2030 um, economic reform program where you will have less um, reliance on crude oil as an export. But also Jafura will release, will free up more crude oil for export. So you don't need to invest so much in the upstream because you will have that excess uh, I think it's half a million or 300,000 barrels a day of, of crude oil that will be freed up. So, um, but, you know, and, and also having the the hydrogen elements, you can always use it for domestic uh, or exported. But, you know, that's going to take time to scale up because demand is not aggregated. It's very patchy at the moment. And yes, and we'll, I'd like to get to hydrogen in, in this conversation. Jafura, Jafura to me is an extremely interesting project because it to me it's kind of the nexus of everything Saudi Arabia is trying to do, and by that I mean it's it's not associated with natural gas uh, as you say, so it has it doesn't entail crude oil production. It it allows them you know they they are very strong in what they what they talked about in the COP twenty six was look we want to we you know when our net zero discussions we want to include circular carbon economy as a as a as a part of the process, um, so they can they can come in at Jafura and develop the natural gas, and as you say, offset three hundred thousand, five hundred thousand barrels of crude that they burn domestically, which is a huge, you know, they're a huge emitter. The, their their local consumption is is enormous, and and something they need to address in terms of crude oil. They can um, 
you know, they can, I think they can try and develop these circular carbon technologies. Obviously, there's, as you said, there's blue hydrogen uh, opportunities coming out of Jafura. Um, so it, it sort of, you know, it, it moves, it's, it's in between, you know, it moves them away from some crude production and moves them closer to their net zero um, commitments. And they get to practice a bit at, at trying to make money at hydrogen, which isn't, you know, certainly blue hydrogen is the most economically feasible one now, but they'd like to do green and we'll get to green. <laughs> but um, yeah, so Javera is, fa uh, is fascinating to me, and, and uh, it'll be interesting to see how it comes. It's also fascinating because technologically they're doing it, you know, in, in the Permian, they're doing it two, 3,000 feet depth. They're planning on do this at nine, 10,000 feet depth with seawater, and, and they think they're going to be able to do it. So there's lots of things still to be determined. Uh, so that'll be interesting to watch. The goalposts have sort of moved, and you sort of alluded to this, um, for Saudi Arabia on renewable energy. Uh, the latest figure that we've seen is December 13th, uh, $101 billion in renewable energy projects and a further $38 billion in energy distribution through 2030. The kingdom said back in March that by 2030, 50% of its energy will come from renewables. Um, but right now, it's really like only 1% of Saudi Arabia's energy mix is renewable. So. Uh, Kate, in your opinion, is this enough of an investment for Saudi Arabia to get there or is more investment needed? I think recently, Amin Nasser, the CEO of Aramco, said, you know, it's it's very difficult to imagine that you're going to go from almost zero to, you know, 50% or 100% by, by 2050. I mean, I think the IEA's net zero scenario, which was much talked about, which the Saudi oil minister said was, uh, energy minister said was uh, la-la land scenario. Uh, which would entail investment of 110 trillion by 2050. Uh, and you would have to install, uh, according to the IEA, um, one, the largest solar park in the world today, every day. I mean, it's a huge ask. And I think you mentioned Michael Cohen, a sort of former colleague and now chief economist at BP in the US. And he said, you know, it's very difficult to imagine all these countries that say they want to develop hydrogen, they want to develop it. You're going to go from, you know, a very low, I think BP statistical review has, um, has uh, renewables still make up less than 1% of total primary energy demand. Higher in the electricity sector, it's about 10%. So you really have to scale it up in a big, big way. And what I think Saudi Aramco was saying was, guys, you have to be realistic. I mean, look at what's happening now. Coal is back. You know, we're burning coal at the moment in Europe, in Asia. There's a scramble for coal because gas prices went through the roof. And that's it's not about the transition, it's really about, you know, moving a bit too quickly to displace even natural gas now, you know, if you don't tackle methane emissions, you're going to have a problem with gas. Somebody else said that if you are going to penalize the international energy companies and stop investing and divesting, um, then you're going to kill LNG because basically they're the ones who produce the LNG. I mean, apart from Qatar, which is, you know, one of the biggest LNG producers, the others are all, you know, either joint ventures with the international majors, uh, so you also kill off LNG, which you are going to need as a sort of bridge fuel, whether you like it or not. So I think it's this dislocation of, of the energy mix that you're seeing and the expectation that you are going to be reaching these, you know, these lofty targets. 
Um, and also you have to think about what happens, for example, if you go into hydrogen, that's going to take time to scale up. You're not going to get the same rent. You might make some profit, you know, if you're a private company, you're not going to get the same rent from uh, hydrogen as you do from crude oil because costs in Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states are very, very low. So it will be the low cost producer, but not just a low cost producer, the low carbon um, you know, oil and gas producer that's going to win out in the end. So that's going to, and, you know, look at Saudi Arabia. They do talk a lot about the circular carbon economy. And I know it's serious, you know, it is a serious effort and it's not something new, but they only have one carbon capture and, um, and storage facility at the moment. So if you're going to ensure that your oil and gas, as you say, will still have a future in the energy mix, you know, beyond 2030, 2040, uh, then you are going to have to decarbonize it. And that's where the problem is. You have to scale it up. That adds to costs. Uh, even hydrogen, green hydrogen is still very costly. Saudi Arabia says it can do it cheaper, maybe. But then you have a lot of losses in transportation and you don't have the infrastructure. You know, gas already has the infrastructure. You've got tankers for LNG and you've got the pipelines. Now you can repurpose the pipelines for, for hydrogen or you can blend it with gas uh, and use it for power generation or you can use it for storage. But again, the infrastructure is not there yet. So I think it's, it's a lot to say, you know, you've got to stop immediately investing in new oil and gas capacity. Well, what happens to your natural declines? Even Saudi Arabia, if we look at Qawar, you know, um, that's in decline. Uh, and when they went public, Saudi Aramco went public, and you looked at the prospectus and you thought, hang on a second, you know, Hawar is only producing, you know, X amount. It used to be half, you know, half a million barrels a day. Um, it's, you know, it's a five million, sorry, it was five million barrels a day, the biggest oil field in the world. I was thinking of, uh, of joint fields in Iraq. Anyway, so at the end of the day, if you look at where things stand at the moment, a lot of countries are struggling, a lot of OPEC members are struggling to meet their quotas. So you have the likes of Saudi Arabia, which has spare production capacity, um, Iraq, which has some spare capacity and is building up, you have the UAE, but the others are, are, are hurting because of the lack of investment, because of uh, the lack of, of proper governance and policies in place. So you will find that at the end of the day, yes, demand is going to fall. Overall demand for energy is going to fall. Your economy might be bigger by 2050 and your share is going to fall. The share of oil and gas is going to fall. But even then, it's still going to be about 50% of, of, of your total energy mix. Yeah, it, I, there's so much wrapped up in, what you, in that comment you just made which covered a lot of things it is fascinating you know uh, um, president biden was encouraging previously you know opec to increase their committed four hundred thousand barrels a month in growth and and they declined uh, you know based on their assessment of the market but as you say a number of opec members couldn't couldn't increase if they wanted to um but going back to the the Transition, the global energy transition, and it was it was interesting. It must have been interesting to be have been Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman, Minister of Energy, in the run up to COP26 at the end of November, when you know he'd been saying all along, "Let's reconsider the pace of this transition." And you've got you've got Europe with natural gas spikes, and 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 you know the intermittency of of uh, renewable energy, and it, it, it appeared that it didn't you know didn't 
there was no sunshine in Europe for three months, so no wind. Yeah, no wind. <laughs> And we wind. still don't have wind. I mean, that's that's well. Today it's a bit windy, but yeah. Like, so, yeah. so you know, it, it, you know, the case was sort of being made for him. But on on again on the flip side, you know, the, you you reference the circular carbon economy, and and so much of of Saudi Arabia's commitment in terms of reducing its its emissions is based on the, this technology that is not necessarily in existence yet, or it is certainly not up to scale in terms of carbon capture. So you, you've got all these these variables and moving parts and might be's and hope fors and, and that sort of thing, and it's an extraordinarily complex picture. Um, but you mentioned hydrogen, yeah. And uh, if I may ask you a question about green hydrogen, which is mm -hmm. the holy grail, and as you've already touched on the economics of it, but um, uh, let me, you know, what Saudi Arabia is is sort of aiming for. And in, in, in July 2020, NEOM formed a joint venture with U.S.-based air products and Aqua Power to create a $5 billion green hydrogen project, uh, you know, with the hopes of producing about 1.2 million tons of ammonia a year by 2025. We, we, we won't hit that. But just this month, they, they led up a contract to uh, ThyssenKrupp, a German industrial conglomerate, to supply and install a two gigawatt plus electrolysis plant for NEOMS, uh, mm -hmm. you know, green, this green hydrogen project. Now, and this is the money quote that I'm, I want, that you alluded to, but uh, the contract is believed to be the world's first firm sale for electrolyzers, mm -hmm. electrolyzers, sorry, for uh, a gigawatt scale green hydrogen project. While there are more than 250 gigawatts of renewable hydrogen projects in the global pipeline, none of their developers have publicly taken final investment decisions because they have not yet been able to guarantee that their hydrogen would find buyers. Um, you know, your reference to, you know, the rent on hydrogen, it would be slightly different than it will be on crude. So, so I guess what I'm asking, and I think what the Saudis are betting on is that, you know, with green hydrogen, maybe they can achieve a, a virtuous cycle similar to that that occurred with solar and on-land wind power over the last decade, where you, you made a market, technology caught up, you made a market, technology caught up, that sort of thing. What's, what's your take on this, this gambit? It's a huge, huge gambit. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think they, yeah, I mean, to me, it makes more sense to go with blue hydrogen because you've got the gas, you've got the, you know, if you adopt the circular carbon economy concept, the carbon capture and storage, you reduce methane. I think hydrogen is is probably in some countries is going to be more for, for domestic use. I mean, one thing that people don't really know about Saudi Aramco is that they do spend a lot on, maybe not so much, but they do spend on research and, and, and development. And I was in Saudi a couple of years ago before COVID. And I was talking to one of the uh, one of the engineers from one of the senior engineers in Morocco. And I said, you know, why can't we just capture the carbon from our exhaust pipes? Um, and he said, well, we're doing that. You yeah. know, you capture it, you put it, and then you empty it somewhere, and then you store it. Um, and they do do a lot of that. I mean, I remember years and years ago, they were talking about algae um, as, a, as a source of, um, of energy, which nobody else was talking about. But I don't think the message gets across so much that they are into innovation, new technologies. The Rampo is huge. I mean, they've got the cash and they've made, you know, um, decent profits this, this year. I just noticed the price of oil is edging up towards 80 again mm -hmm. today, you know, on the open. So um, it's... Uh, 
I think it is a huge bet, but don't forget, this is actually coming from the top. This is a pet project. This is Neon. It's a pet project of uh, of the Crown Prince, uh, who is de facto ruler of, of Saudi Arabia. So I think betting against it happening is, you know, is is uh, is pretty risky. I think it will go ahead. Um, I think one of the big issues is that you have to have, you know, you've got to transport it somehow. So you convert it into ammonia. You ship it, it's regasified, you, there's a lot of loss. Um, for other countries that are that are developing green hydrogen, Morocco, for example, they've got pipeline access to Europe. Um, they've got Germany, which is a huge market. You know, you've got the European Union looking at, uh, but I think Germany is the one really leading the sort of hydrogen right. in, in, in Europe. Um, so uh, that's... And that's why it's interesting to see that the German connection with Saudi Arabia. Japan, obviously, is, is big. They've already shipped, I think, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have shipped blue ammonia to, to Japan. But demand is not yet aggregated, and you don't have a commoditized market yet. So I think it's early days. But I wouldn't bet on, on, on that project not going ahead and, you know, uh, and developing an alternative. I think when I talk to my Saudi friends, I say, don't call them, you know, they are, they are sort of, they're not really alternatives, but they're sort of like supports. It, it's almost like a support system because you can't get one without the other, you know. Right, right. Which, uh, going back, was why I thought Jafar was so interesting because it sort of blends in everything. But the, um, you know, one thing, we, we're in the weeds on Saudi every day, and it's fascinating. You know the the constant drumbeat of huge announcements, biggest, best, this and that, and you can dismiss it, uh, and you can try and be realistic about it. You unpack what's real, what's not, what's possible, what's not. Um, I think they are very serious about this, and I think when you when they look at this, they go, they go, okay. This is going to be a lost leader for a time, but we anticipate that there's going to be a technology boom and that we would like some of that to happen here. And, and Saudi Aramco in particular, like you say, is, you know, their investment vehicle, SAEV, is they're out getting all sorts of technologies and processes and manufacturing things that, that you know, enable, they, they picture enabling them to make this transition. Same thing a bit with PIF in terms of acquisitions they're making. Um, it is a big bet, but you're, you, I, I agree with you 100%. They're out there um, thinking these things through and seeing if maybe they can get a get an edge or, or possession of some of this technology that will help make it possible. Um, and obviously, you can export that knowledge as well. You know, yeah. I mean, that's another commodity that you can export because you are doing something that nobody else is doing. And I, you know, but. Um, uh, I really think they do see themselves as as down that path. That this is not a moonshot. It is a moonshot, but it's not a it's a feasible moonshot. And that they they're very purposefully and intentionally trying to set up a an ecosystem where this might happen with Saudi Arabia somewhere towards the center. Yeah, I think they actually called it a moonshot. I mean, that's <laughs> one of them called it a moonshot. Yeah, it's, uh, no, I think it's, it, you know, for a long time, everybody was a bit skeptical about Saudi Arabia because, you know, if you look in, in the past, you know, the previous climate meetings or G7 meetings, they were always pushing back 
on you know, the sort of the climate agenda. And things I think have changed, but only recently. And I think that's why a lot of people were skeptical because they were always seen as working behind the scenes, even until recently before COP26 in Glasgow, there was that leaked reports from uh, Greenpeace, I think saying, you know, that they were working Japanese and that the uh, Australians are sort of toned down and they've always done that. But I think in, now it's more, it's more rooted in realism as opposed to the Saudis saying, you know, we want to defend our interests and our main resource because they realize, I mean, you know, it's impossible not to accept the fact that you can't rely on oil, oil crude oil for, you know, uh, for beyond right. the next few decades. So I think it's more realistic. And I think if you look at, I mean, NASA's latest speech in, in Houston, um, it made a lot of sense. You know, mm -hmm. he, was being, he said, you know, maybe what I'm saying is not going to please everybody and I'm going to get a lot of flack for it, but it has to be said. You know, it's being said, saying in public what a lot of people say in private. So it's all very well to, uh, you know, to cater to this globe growing community that is more climate conscious, more, you know, in a carbon constrained world, but you also have to be realistic in your expectations. And I think what what is, I think, the, the only problem I see is that the Saudi um, pledge, the, the net zero pledge, 2060, net zero pledge, doesn't cover scope three emissions, which is, you know, when the stuff is actually burnt, not right. scope one from, you know, right. your production and, and scope two from. So I think that's, uh, that's where they might come under some, you know, face some criticism but they're not alone i mean scope three emissions are a big huge issue for trying to calculate carbon right. credits and, and who carbon taxes and so you on, know so. it's it, it, you know the, i guess my understanding of, of the you know climate agreement and these these uh, national targets you know the scope you you have you have to be responsible for the domestically ones that are you know emitted domestically so yeah. i mean that's the saudis out but Apropos to what you were saying about, uh, I think you mentioned over the last five years, I, I really do believe, I agree with you, the Saudis um, now look at this, and it's an evolution that's occurred, it seems, before our eyes, but, you know, maybe they were, you know, they were thinking this way before they went public with it, but they may very much no longer see this so much as a crisis as an opportunity. Mm. You know, yeah. they recognize the crisis, they've been fully aware, of course, Saudi Arabia, you know, has been aware of the you know the issue of stranded assets and and these mm. things for for a long long time but they have definitely transitioned to now where this is this is an opportunity and it was an interesting comment when uh, uh when um the climate uh, representative Kerry was in Riyadh for the green initiative announcement and he specifically referenced this he said he re referenced the crown prince saying you know there's a reason that I, I support this is because they're looking at this a certain way, and that is that it's an opportunity. Yeah, well, they were going to build, well, they're going to plant lots of trees as well. That's not part of your, but I think that's another story. Yeah, but no, exactly. I think yeah, there is a sense of realism, and you know, they're not alone in it. You know, you've got uh, the UAEs now mm -hmm. got this alliance. You know, you've got three of their of their renewable energy and electricity. And, utilities sort of joining hands and saying you know we're going to go big into into um, into renewables so it's 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 more of a regional um yeah. drive as opposed to just uh, you know, patchy yeah. and across the middle east so i think what you need to do is to and, and the same should have happened with gas but it didn't really 
is to have a sort of integrated policy. You don't right. really have a grid. You don't have a right. proper grid. You've got the electricity, GCCIA, but it doesn't really function the way a grid should function. Um, you've got price disparities. You've got subsidies still in, in some countries that still linger. That will prevent you from having a sort of common market, so to speak, because that will benefit everybody. I mean, you don't need to all invest in. We've got nuclear power to come as well, you know, maybe. Um, there you go. Your mention of UAE reminded me of that. That's another, you know, source that, that Saudi Arabia, I think, would like to uh, yeah. move along. Yeah, they've looked at it. I don't know if they're going to go ahead with it, but I mean, they've, they've looked at it. They've got, um, you know, agreements with various countries to, to look at nuclear. But uh, I think it's, uh, at the end of the day, they are still going to be producing one. I mean, they say they're going to be producing the last barrel, but so long as it's the last low carbon barrel or right. zero carbon barrel because you've mentioned stranded assets which is not something they like to hear at all um it's a term that we sort of avoid or enjoy them but at the same time you you will have stranded assets if you don't invest in carbon capture absolutely and it's it's going to be driven from the consumer side you know you're going to have more policies you know post cop 26 uh, as you tighten regulations methane emissions. I mean, now you can't hide, you know, you cannot, uh, you can't have methane emissions and gas flaring, you know, without, uh, without end, like you have in Iraq, because you're going to be penalized for it. You know, people are looking now for zero carbon or, you know, carbon credits, not carbon credits, um, carbon certificates, um, that you are actually complying, Qatar's done a bit. So there's, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of bits of the puzzle that have to come together, and at the moment it's not looking very clear. Yeah, I agree. And I, Lucian and I were talking the other day, and we were talking about stranded assets. But you know, the, the, uh, Prince Abdulaziz's reference that we will pump the last molecule of oil, and you know, I don't see that happening. There will be oil left in the ground, but I, I see the Saudis pumping the last molecule of oil that you can sell for a profit. Mm-hmm. But I think you also have to convince your consumers because, you know, at the moment, if you look at, you know, you listen to the environmentalists, and it's like oil and gas is bad. And then you look at the CEO Total, Patrick Poyani, who says, you know, I cannot go green without, you know, I need exactly. the black in order to produce the green. Exactly. You know, I can't suddenly stop doing what I've been doing for decades, you know. Right. Since, um, and that's where I think where we may have these instances where, if you have, you know, you have two years of low investment in upstream, 2014, 2015, um, and then the 2020 as well. So you've lost you know, hundreds of billions in, in investment. And that, so you're going to get maybe periods where you will have a supply, a demand supply gap, even as demand declines, you know, it won't grow at 1 million barrels a day or one, as it was in, in, in past decades. It will slow, but at the same time, you have declines. You have a lot of countries that aren't investing. You have countries where the likelihood of companies going and investing in upstream is shrinking because, for example, who's going to go into Iran, even assuming you get a deal which is looking less likely at the moment? You get a nuclear deal, Iran opens up. They're going to have have to be very competitive in, in, in the contract models that they offer. That's going to take time. Um, by the time their oil comes onto market, additional oil, the market probably won't want it. So I think you will have the winners and losers. You will have like society Ranko who are already, if you haven't already positioned yourself for the transition, you're already too late. 
Kate, thank you so much. Thank you.